This podcast is for grown-ups only. Some of the content may not be appropriate for little ears like mine. Little did I know that that would end up leading me to the federal penitentiary. That really solidified me on the gospel. I don't miss too many opportunities. He spit on my dress blues, and it was not even, it was just a, a reaction. And it broke his jaw and his arm. Welcome to Diakonos, Cops Calling. I'm Anthony Weaver. And on this episode, I have part one of my two-part conversation with someone I consider as close as a brother. However, over 30 years ago, he was a lawbreaker in every sense of the word, and had I been older and known him, then it would have been due to interaction with him as a police officer. He was definitely the type of guy I would have been kicking up dust in pursuit of. Quite simply, uh, we're friends now because of the power of the gospel, and you don't want to miss part one of this conversation, uh, which is coming up here in a little bit. Uh, before that, I want to make sure that you're following the Diagnostic Cops Calling Facebook page. Why? Well, every week, either Saturday or Sunday, I release a trailer for the upcoming episode uh, that I that I drop on Tuesdays. And if you aren't following the page, you may be missing those. Uh, you can also follow me on uh, Twitter at mtonyw for the same trailers. And I also put out other stuff on these platforms, uh, things I've read, uh, blog posts that I appreciate, uh, passages from scripture, things like that. I put those out throughout the week um, that you'll see if you're following uh, me on Facebook or on um, Twitter. Before I dive into the meat of this episode, I also wanted to just share a quick reaction to the Officer Chauvin verdict. As I said in last week's episode, we need to hope and trust that the jury did their job despite all the pressure uh, they were under. Uh, that pressure got really ramped up right before the verdict. Uh, it started uh, with Congresswoman Maxine Waters out of California and President Joe Biden also. Uh, Congresswoman Waters actually got a police escort. I love the irony of that. A police escort into Minneapolis where she waded into the crowd and stated, we got to stay on the street and we've got to get more active. We've got to get more confrontational. We've got to make sure that they know that we mean business, end quote. Before the verdict was reached, President Biden stated that he was, quote, praying the verdict was the right verdict, end quote suggesting that there was overwhelming evidence in his opinion, and then stating, quote, I wouldn't say that unless the jury was sequestered, end quote. President Biden made these comments after the defense for Officer Chauvin asked for a mistrial due to uh, Congresswoman Waters' comments and comments from other people in the press and uh, threats of violence and that sort of thing. So the defense for Officer Chauvin asked for a mistrial Judge um, Kale denied the motion, but actually laid into Congresswoman Waters in open court and um, other politicians who could not keep their mouths shut about this case. Judge Cahill actually conceded in open court that the defense for Officer Chauvin would maybe be able to use some of these statements to file an appeal. From what I know of the case and my understanding of the facts presented, 
I do think there was reasonable doubt that Officer Chauvin's actions were the substantial cause of Floyd's death. And therefore, I, I did think there was reasonable doubt to find him guilty on the second-degree murder and third-degree murder. Um, I thought the most appropriate conviction would have been for the manslaughter. Uh, but that being said, I also said that jury were the only people who heard all the facts um, and that we needed to trust and believe that they had done their job correctly. Uh, I've seen many people and police officers deciding that this ver- verdict uh, was not justice, it was the wrong verdict, and that jury made a decision that was colored by political pressure, pressure about violence, things of that nature, and um, that because the, they had that pressure, their, their decision, their verdict was tainted uh, by that pressure and those threats of riots. Very, very possible. And I do believe the defense will file an appeal based on some of the comments made and some of the things that were out there um, and that they will have a case. I do think they will have a case uh, to, to appeal uh, this trial and this, and this verdict. What I'm not comfortable doing, though, is assigning motives to a jury whom I don't know. Uh, do I think politicians tampered with the system? Yes, I, I do. Whether they did so consciously or uh, not on purpose, I don't know. But I do think there was tampering with the system and trying to push it a certain way. Uh, do I know if these statements and the pressure sway the jury? I don't. And just like I get upset when people assign motives to police officers without knowing what they knew, what they were seeing, what their training was, um, or what experience has taught that officer. So in the same way, I'm not at a point where I'm going to assign motives to this jury and say that they were swayed. They very well may be, uh, but I'm not, I'm not going to assign that to them. Even though they were to be sequestered, uh, I'm not even sure how you can accomplish that in this day and age with media access, telephone access, internet access everywhere uh, without them being guarded the whole time. But at the same time, I'm not going to say that they were swayed. I'm not going to put that on them. Um, now should Officer Chauvin's defense team file an appeal and win? Will those that think this verdict was a win for the justice system be of the same mind if the verdict is overturned? I hope so. We have to let the justice system work. We have to. If we allow mob rule to decide the outcome of cases, we don't have justice. So if the justice system continues to work and the verdict against Officer Chauvin is overturned, is the justice system still working or is it only working when you get what you want? That is the question from me. Finally, I wanted to break down the shooting of Adam Toledo in Chicago, uh, which also recently hit the news. And just kind of wanted to speak to what happened and and bring some considerations to that. Suspect in this case is 13 years old and was apparently a member of a gang. He also, uh, from everything I've read, had a nickname of Lil Homicide at 13 years of age. And then you have the officer, Officer Eric Stillman. He was Marine. He served in Afghanistan. He's been on Chicago PD for five years. And the press really wants you to know that he had three complaints in five years, two involving improper searches, a third's unknown, no disciplinary action was taken on these. And I'll say this about complaints. When the press reports an officer's complaint history, it usually means nothing to me. And the reason is that good cops get complaints all the time. 
if you're out there doing your job, interacting with the public, a portion of the public that hate the police, don't want to have interaction with you, a portion of the public that lie, cheat, steal, hurt, those people will try to do everything they can to get away with what they're getting away with. And they will file complaints on you falsely. I've received complaints against me that were completely fabricated stories and complete bold-faced lies. I've had people try to bring criminal charges against me that were lies. Um, so when I see, and honestly, an officer working for Chicago PD with as much action as they have there, and he only has three complaints in five years, that is not bad at all. I mean, that, that literally means nothing to me. It pretty much means that he's, he's probably pretty good, at his, pretty good at his job or never doing anything. That's, that's what that means to me. Anyways, the call. Uh, why were the police there? Well, there's a report of shots fired. A guy by the name of Ruben Roman was the other suspect who was with Toledo. Uh, Roman is on surveillance video firing a gun at an occupied vehicle. When Officer Stillman and his uh, partner arrive, both start running immediately. Uh, the reason I know that is because if you watch Officer Stillman's body cam, you can see him popping his door open before they're even coming to a stop. And as soon as he exit, exits, he's running. Uh, Roman's taken down immediately. Uh, he had gloves on him that ended up having gunshot residue on him. Um, but from everything I've read about the case and looked into, it doesn't appear he had a gun on him. Possibly the gun that Toledo had was the one that Roman had shot. I'm not saying it was, but just knowing what I know about the case, it sounds, sounds like maybe possibly Roman fired the gun at the occupied vehicle uh, that was passing by. Then when they started running, maybe handed that gun off to Toledo, who had it while he ran down uh, this alleyway. So Toledo's running down this alley with the gun. He's told to stop. He refuses. Um, there's a large fence along the one side of this alley, and there's a break in this fence. And Toledo reaches the break in the fence. Officer Stillman gives orders to Toledo to drop a gun and fires one shot immediately after Toledo throws the gun. In the video, there are literally milliseconds between the order to drop the gun, the actual dropping of the gun, and the shooting. Um, and Officer Stillman fires one shot, and Toledo uh, does die from that gunshot wound. So facts to consider about this case. The first thing is, why didn't Toledo throw the gun right away? And what was the point of keeping it? What was he planning on doing with it? Yes, he, he dropped it, but... The fact that he held onto the gun for so long is, is a huge danger to police officers. Um, I've had many foot pursuits where the suspect throws the gun immediately. Could they have a second gun on him? Absolutely. It's still a very dangerous situation. Uh, we've taken two or three guns off of one person. So it's always possible the person has another gun. But it's always a, a better thing for the suspect if they throw the gun at the beginning of the foot pursuit. They're separating themselves from something that can immediately harm or hurt a police officer. Whenever I chased a suspect who was holding onto the gun and was not throwing it, that obviously is very dangerous. And you have to ask yourself, why isn't the suspect throwing the gun? And you have to assume 
that it's to use it against you. The other fact to consider in this case is just purely reaction time. Uh, For Science Institute uh, has done studies on this. They've uh, they've found that uh, the time for a person to perceive a threat and react to it is 0.7 to 1.5 seconds, and the same uh, reaction time to realize a threat is over and react to it uh, by stopping their use of force action. So from their summary, I'm quoting them here, they say, if an officer were to take merely 0.56 seconds to react to a stop shooting signal, three to four extra rounds could be fired by the, uh, by the officer as an automatic sequence after the signal to stop has already occurred. The slower an officer's reaction time, the greater the number of shots can be fired before conscious stopping can occur. So basically that reaction time, 0.7 to 1.5 seconds, is, is a normal reaction time. In that time, more, officer, more shots can be fired by the officer. From the time they perceive the threat is over to the time that perception reaches their finger that's pulling the trigger, they can fire three to four more shots. And that's if they're on the low, if, that's, if they're on the quick end of the reaction time. So putting that in perspective in this case with Toledo, he in milliseconds, he's telling him to drop the gun. The gun is dropped. A shot is fired within milliseconds. That happens. Um, so, you know, that, that reaction time needs to be looked at and, and understood. He's not a robot. He can't perceive the threat is gone and stop immediately. Most officers can, cannot do that. What affects this? Training, sleep, nutrition. Uh, if you're in dark, light, noise, the list goes on. Like, there's so many factors that can influence your reaction time in any, any given uh, situation. So probably the best way I, I could prove this point, I was trying to think how can I prove this point, is, is if you, having never seen the video before, you would watch the video um, of the shooting of Toledo and pause it at the moment you see Toledo drop the gun. Maybe, and it's a big maybe, you would get the video stopped at the exact moment he drops the gun. Um, I will tell you that I've seen the video many times. I tried to do this after watching the video several times and knowing when he drops the gun. And I still, it took me like three or four tries to stop the video right when he drops the gun. So that just gives you an idea of the reaction time that you have, even when you know what's coming. And in this instance, the officer has no idea what's coming. Uh, He's making those decisions. It's dark out. He has a flashlight. That's flashing all types of things. So I have to believe that the quote unquote news agency is trying to stop the video at the exact perfect moment for them to push the negative narrative against the police head producers uh, watching the video and yelling, stop it now. Okay, it's coming up. Stop it now. You know, just it's so ridiculous. They're, they're, they're playing it in slow motion and stopping it just at the right moment where Toledo has his hands up and um, just t- trying to get the perfect still to flash on the news and try to convince us that this cop is a piece of racist garbage. That's really what this is about. Trying to convince us that what we're seeing is an officer not doing his job and, and trashing him for doing uh, what they could not do the first time in a pristine environment. Um, 
unless they slowed it down and did it frame by frame, you know, while they sat in a chair with perfect lighting, you know, um, from multiple angles. So the news agencies are accomplishing something in that way and expecting the officer to accomplish it perfectly uh, in the moment with absolute impeccable reaction time. And it's just not feasible. It's not reality. It's not reality at all. Anyone who watches the whole video, again, the news is putting out just the foot pursuit, the shooting. But if you watch the whole video uh, after what the news only wants to show you, you'll see Officer Stillman immediately, I mean immediately, go to the aid of Toledo, um, calling for medical help, asking another officer to bring a medical kit, telling other officers about the wound, describing the wound, and what they need to do to help save him. Um, at one point, another officer's body cam shows Officer Stillman sitting against a fence, um, and it appears he's distressed uh, by what happened. They show you a video of an officer shooting a suspect who happens to be 13 years old, and they try to paint that officer as just an, an animal. And it's pathetic because if you watch the whole video, if you understand the call, if you dig into how hard it is to make that decision and have an impeccable reaction time, it, it's just not reality. It's not reality at all. Um, and then to see Officer Stillman react the way he did after the shooting, it's actually incredible. Here is an officer who literally believed that his life was in danger, reacted to that threat in the way he should have, and within milliseconds of that, turned from trying to stop that threat with active violence, turned to helping that person. I want you to think about that. Believing he was protecting his life from someone, he goes from fighting for his life to try to save the life of the person he was fighting. That's incredible. I think it's incredible. So Roman was charged with, with some gun charges. And he, he bailed out. He posted $15,000 bail uh, with the help of a nonprofit called Chicago Community Bond Fund. In addition, Roman posted another 25000 bail in an earlier but separate gun case. So a total of $40,000 bail was posted uh, on Roman's behalf to get him out of jail. I'm just going to read this uh, clip from CBS Channel 2 News in Chicago, and they are talking to uh, one of the leaders of the Chicago Community Bond Fund, who said, We often prioritize cases that are connected to social justice movements, especially the movement to end police violence, said Kisa Reynolds, who currently leads the Chicago Community Bond Fund. The bond fund pays bonds for those who can't afford to pay on their own. They bonded Roman out of jail, putting up $40,000. Quote, we made the decision to post bond for Mr. Roman because we are aware that the city will continue to use him as a scapegoat for the killing of Adam Toledo, which was committed by the Chicago Police Department, Reynolds said. At a hearing Monday, a judge 
commented on the large amount of money posted on Roman's behalf, saying a lot of people sitting in jail could use some of that money, I bet. Other people's bonds will not go unpaid simply because we paid Mr. Romans, Reynolds said. With high-profile cases like this one, it becomes even more important that somebody enjoys the presumption of innocence. Reynolds was asked if there was a certain type of charge or crime they won't support. She said the crime committed does not factor into the decision on which cases to support. So they don't care about the crime. Do not care about the crime. What do they care about? Uh, Prioritizing cases that are connected to social justice movements, especially those to end police violence. Well, Ms. Reynolds, this is not police violence. This is violence by criminals. That's what this is. Uh, What Roman should be charged with, in my opinion, is involuntary manslaughter and reckless homicide. And right out of the Illinois uh, Crimes Code, it says a person who unintentionally kills an individual without lawful justification commits involuntary manslaughter if his acts, whether lawful or unlawful, which cause the death are such as are likely to cause death or great bodily harm to some individual and he performs them recklessly. I don't know why this guy is in charge with reckless homicide. I really don't, and hopefully he will be. Um, Officer Stillman absolutely should not be charged. Uh, they haven't charged him. I hope they don't charge him. I hope they don't fire him. Um, he, did, he did his job. In fact, I'll say this. He and his partner showed heroism and bravery, not because they killed someone, but because they answered that call and went. There are some officers who bring much shame to themselves would have gone slowly to this call or made sure they weren't the first ones there. Some officers who would have hoped to arrive and find nothing or got there and did nothing to find anything. There are some officers like that. Some officers don't want to deal with anything like this and would rather shake hands and kiss babies. But then you have officers like this willing to go to the call quickly, literally kick up dust in pursuit of lawbreakers, one older, one younger, of which their ages did not matter in the moment they were faced with. Did not matter. Romans 13 does not call us to differentiate with how we should treat lawbreakers due to age. Verse 2 in Romans 13 says, Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. I don't see any stipulation for age in there. The age may make this incident more difficult, more heart-wrenching, but it doesn't change the facts of what was faced by the officers. No, these officers, they went and they chased an armed suspect. You may not like a 13-year-old referred to as an armed suspect, but that's what he was. But not only did Officer Stillman pursue an armed suspect, he still showed him dignity as a human being, doing what had to be done, but then showing a level of care and empathy for Toledo as he helped him and was assisted by others to save his life. Officer Stillman appears to be very upset by this incident. And how could he not be? But I hope he understands that it wasn't his fault. He did his job, and he did it to the best of his ability. He did what the citizens of Chicago want him to do, even if they don't know they wanted and needed him to do it. I'm glad he's okay. I'm proud to call him a brother officer. He handled himself professionally, doing his job before during, and after the incident. And I hope someday he hears this episode. Okay, that's enough of me talking. Let's jump into part one of my conversation with my guest on this episode.
You've heard me mention on another episode that there's probably only one friend that I have outside of the job who has any idea uh, what I've done and what the job entails. What is very interesting about that is that this guy gets it because he used to be on the other side, living a life as a violent member of an outlaw motorcycle club and engaging in all types of criminal activity that landed him in prison. But who is now a follower of Jesus Christ and by his grace and mercy turned his life around and who I can proudly call one of my brothers and a close friend. Uh, Because of his past, there are still those out there who would seek to do him harm. And because of that, um, and because if they were given a chance to do that for our purposes, I'm calling him Al. So Al, thank you for coming on the podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, my brother. Yes. The great voice of Al. So in my notes, I said, listen, this is probably going to go off the rails immediately. <laughs> <laughs> that could happen. So, um, but I did want to ask you, you know, one thing that has always uh, been challenging to me, I, 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 yeah, maybe a little challenging, but inter- maybe interesting would be a better word, is how you and I have been able to connect and become very close friends. And how that was possible, someone who lived the lifestyle that you lived, someone who did what I did, and and we became very close. Obviously, our relationship with Christ has a lot to do with that. Amen. But I also think there's a little more to it. And recently, I saw this quote, and I just wanted to ask you what you thought about it. Um, It's a quote by a doctor named M.I. Rapier, a clinical psychologist. And he says, there's some, sometimes a fine line between a cop and a criminal. What drives their personality may be the same, and they have simply chosen different roles and professions to call their own. Um, so, I, yeah, I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on that, what you thought about that quote, and also, um, yeah, why you think we're able to understand each other or get along so well. Well, I think part of that is uh, I remember the first time that you and I really had an opportunity to talk, and uh, you were kind of doing security at an event, Clipper Magazine Stadium, and uh, I just kind of rolled up on you. And You did roll up on me. I did roll up on you, <laughs> and you were kind of guarded, like, okay, who's this tattooed nut? And uh, we just started talking. I mean, I mean, really, genuinely, we just started talking, and we started talking about life and lifestyles and, you know, current things that were going on, and I could tell you were somewhat guarded um, just because of my presence, I think, uh, and maybe some uh, recollection on yourself to, like, judge me just a little bit. Not judge me, but to, because of your being a police officer, obviously looking at me with the tattoos and my size and all that. But, you know, we really just kind of broke it off, man. We just talked. We talked for a long time that day. Yeah, we did. And uh, and I walked away from that, and I said to my wife, you know, um, I said, man, he, he he's a good guy, man. He's really a good guy. I said it was an interesting conversation. You know, here I am, you know, you know and I don't know that I think we both knew we were believers because of the event we were at. Right. But there was still kind of this, like, yeah, line. But I think part of the part of the thing was really is that there's lifestyle similarities, uh, you know, in what you did as law enforcement and what I did as an aberrant 
individual in my life. And, you know, some of those were, you know, as a police officer, you know, you're dealing with criminals, dealing with people all the time. You're going into situations not knowing what to expect, not knowing if someone's going to do whatever, right? And because it's an all-in proposition. And that's, you know, and I understand that's the kind of guy you are, right? You're, you're like all in. You're either going to do this or you're not going to do this. Right. And I think that that was the same for me in the, in the path that I chose in my life. Um, I was all in. Like right. I was going to do whatever it took. And, you know, being a former Marine, I understood dedication, camaraderie, loyalty, you know, brotherhood. I understood all of that. And so then after the Marine Corps, when I got connected with clubs, um, you know, that whole lifestyle, there is a, there is a, and that quote is very good. I appreciate that. Uh, there is a very thin line between that because I think honestly, Anthony, if, if we're to be honest and you and I have talked many times, I think we're, we're pretty much cut from the same ilk. Um, we are, I would agree with that. And, uh, I think that, you know, some of the uh, nurture or environmental things may have caused us to make different life choices. And we'll get into some of that later about my own life. But, uh, yeah, it, it's the all in proposition. Like you're going to do whatever it takes to do for you. It meant upholding justice and the law, the oath that you took for me, it meant I made a commitment to live this lifestyle and I was going to live this lifestyle all in 100%. Right. And that's what I did. Right. I do think one of the differences um, is that when it comes to criminals and officers interacting, mm-hmm. I feel like criminals always have the upper hand to a certain degree because the criminal knows <laughs> what they're going to do. They, mm-hmm. In their mind, they're, they're playing out what they're going to do. They have an end goal in mind. It might be trying to convince the officer of a wrong identity. It might be looking for a way to flee. It might be looking for a way for that offender to hurt the officer. Mm-hmm. So the officer is very reactive in that situations. But on the other side of it, I think, you know, I completely agree with what you're saying. Like, generally speaking, uh, there's this all-in attitude with, with I don't want to say all officers, uh, but with a lot of officers, I think there's that attitude. Right. And by all-in, I think, Really, what I mean is, is that, okay, as a police officer, you knew that you had a brotherhood. Right. And especially given what you did, Mm -hmm. right? You knew that people had your six, man. Right. Like, you knew there was a guy who was willing to step in front of a bullet for you. I mean, literally, in a situation, if someone had a gun drawn on you, they were going to do what was necessary. Right. That same mentality in, in affiliation and camaraderie and brotherhood on the other side, I mean, I lived that lifestyle and I stood at the, at the end of many of firearms and was willing to do that for my brotherhood. Right. Now, the other part of that, and I do agree with you, is that, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah, criminals a lot of times have already thought three or four moves ahead. They're thinking, if I get stopped, this is what I'm going to do. Right. And you're right. False identity, whatever it is, or I'm going to break and run. I'm going to whatever. Right. Um, you know, it's interesting that um, I, this is just a little sidetrack. But, uh, you know, I remember when I was applying for jobs and I had to do background checks and they would get my FBI report and it had red letters on the top that said approach with caution, prone to extreme violence. 
on the top of my FBI report. And so right. that gives you some indication of, I was already thinking in my mind, if this guy doesn't draw down on me, I'm going to roll with him or I'm going to do what I need to do to get away. Right. That's how it was. And, uh, and when you say roll with them, are you talking about uh, members of other clubs or enemies or were, are you talking about the police too? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I mean, yes. I mean, if an officer was, you know, and on any given day, given the drugs that I was doing and the lifestyle I was living, you know, if I was amped up on meth for two or three days and I got pulled over, it was nothing for me to be willing to, yeah, you want to get with me? Let's get with it. What in those incidents, like, I don't think I've ever asked you this. Have, did you ever assault a cop? Yes. Okay. What? How many times? Several. Really? Yes. Okay. Get out of my house. No, I'm just messing I'll leave if you want me to. No. <laughs> totally mess with you. Uh, no, yes, actually, twice in North Carolina, once in Lancaster. Okay. Uh, you actually know the officer that I assailed. Uh, he's retired now, but anyway. Okay. All right. Um, <laughs> was there, like, why did those incidents happen? And I don't need you to break down every single one, but was there, like, specific reasons why they happened when they did? Were you looking for certain things, or was it just, hey, I'm going to get locked up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fight. Uh, the, the two in North Carolina were, if I can be very candid and say the officers were just being jerks, Okay. um, you know, pulled me over for a traffic stop and then just ran the, ran the gambit on me because, you know, I'm wearing cuts, long hair, long beard. Right. And they're just being jerks. And you can imagine that in North Carolina. Well, I hadn't are, done anything. I mean, I had a blinker on my bike that wasn't working. Okay. Right? But then like, he's like, you know, tell me, open my bags, this and that. He's just like, look, and I'm like, okay, just give me the citation, dude, and let me roll. And you're wearing your, your, oh yeah. I'm wearing my colors. cuts, you know, and your so, cuts, and, right. And so right away there was a bias. Now the one that happened in Lancaster. Well, hold on. But don't you think, don't you think there should be a bias in that situation? Uh, I don't know that there should be a, 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 a judgment. Listen, if you pull me over, whether I'm wearing cuts or what I'm wearing, and I'm being respectful, right? I'm not being belligerent. I'm not acting like a jerk, right? Why are you going to now start looking and digging? But, but you're wearing the uniform for back. When you say cuts, you're wearing the uniform of an outlaw motorcycle. I've said gang before. You don't club an outlaw motorcycle club. You're wearing those. You're flying that flag. Mm-hmm. You're letting that officer know, hey, this is the lifestyle I'm in, in, engaged in. Like every time I pulled over an outlaw motorcycle club member, like I was, I was going to push because I knew the types of things they were engaged in. It didn't mean I was going to do anything illegal, but it meant that, hey, I'm pulling over a guy who's, who's literally representing a criminal enterprise. Okay. But that doesn't mean that that, individ- that specific individual was doing anything criminal so so are there members in these clubs that aren't doing anything criminal absolutely really oh yeah that are unaware of the things going on and yep. unaware of what the club yes, is taking indeed. part in yep okay there is uh in the one percent there's probably one percent of the one percent who actually really know what's happening as far as whether it's you know drugs whores 
Um, can I say that on? You can, I'm sorry. You can say whatever. You know, what, whatever. You can say whatever. But you, you understand want. what I'm saying? They're they're it's the top tier people who really know what's happening. But the, you know the ground troops really. I mean, a lot of them, you know, they're prospecting. They don't really know. Hey, go guard the bikes at this event, right? They they don't know what's going on with methamphetamine or weed or or whatever. They have no clue. But, um. Dude, this is getting awesome because I'm, I'm, this is blowing my mind. So you're telling me uh, that those people that are joining up in an outlaw motorcycle club, a lot of them don't really know what they're getting into or just aren't directly involved with it. Need to know. Okay. So they uh, know. I mean, th- they understand what that lifestyle means and they understand that there are certain things that go on in that lifestyle but they may not actually be involved in any of that okay fair enough and so that that's why i say just because you pull a guy over who's flying cuts doesn't mean that he's dealing meth or you know or he's carrying a gun or whatever now i understand you know for obviously reasons as a police officer you want to be safe Right. right, and you want to you want to fulfill your duty to uphold the law and get that element, whatever it may be, off or out of the streets. I appreciate that, but again, I wasn't carrying a piece. I had no drugs on me. I didn't have. I had a bad turn signal on my bike. So how did that turn into you assaulting the police officer? Uh, because I I said to him, I said. I have done nothing wrong. You're pulling me over for a motor vehicle violation for a turn signal that's out. There's no need for you to call, to make me open the bags on my bike. There's no need for you to search me. This is a moving violation. And he decided to take it upon himself to put his hands on me. Okay. And I took it upon myself to respond. Okay. I mean, it's as simple as that. There was no reason for him to put his hands on me. None. He should have just gave me my citation and moved on. Okay. Now, the one in Lancaster was a completely different story. I had done two or three hits of LSD. I was at my mother's house. Uh, One of my children's mothers was there, and things got a little crazy, and uh, they put their hands on her on the front porch and I came flying out of the house and jumped off the steps and basically did a Superman punch. <laughs> I, I was, I was tripping, man. Right. And they proceeded to hog cuff me. And, uh, and this particular officer put his hands up between my legs and grabbed my groin and squeezed with both hands and basically almost caused me to pass out. Okay. He threw me in the back of the car and whisked me off. All right. Now, did you get charged with ag assault uh, on an officer on that one? No, actually, I had a really good lawyer who said there were very mitigating circumstances in okay. that I was trying to protect a pregnant my pregnant girlfriend. I really want to ask you who the lawyer was. I bet I know who it was. I'm anyway, not, I'm not gonna. I'm yeah. not gonna make you. He rides. I yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so um, oh man. The, the, what's incredible is, uh, you know, the fact that we are actually sitting here talking about this and, um, it, it is like, it is incredible to me. So just, just for clarification, how long have you been out of that lifestyle? Uh, let's see. 
30 years. Okay. 30, 31 years. Right. Um, and, uh, and actually right now you're actually working towards, I always forget if it's clemency yes. or, okay. And you're a working towards that. clemency. Right. One and the same. And, and I, I actually wrote a letter on your, your behalf. I, I want would, people to understand like. Which I was we're, very appreciative We're about. tight. We're yes. tight. Like, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I may be pushing back here and like being okay. like, yo, man, what, what's up with that? But this is, this is just how we roll. Well, and you know, I've told you this before, Anthony, right? I can count on one hand the people who I have that much respect, love, and, and care for. I can count on one hand mm-hmm. uh, that, that get the designation as like a best friend. Right. Um, and I feel tremendously blessed by that. Uh, if people have one or two, they should feel blessed. But, you know, I, I count you in that group. Well, that's a, that's a high honor, I will say. That's a high honor. And, and uh, yeah, I love you, brother. Um, and you I make think, me cry. Oh, <laughs> oh dude, you're going to be crying by the end of this, I'm sure. Um, I probably will be, too. I'm not going to lie. I think it, it, it goes to without saying that even though you're, you're talking about these things, um, you know, about assaulting police officers and that sort of thing, you would absolutely unequivocally say right now that those were not correct decisions. Those were not right decisions. Those were sinful to decisions. I mean, you, you're talking about why it happened and, and what led up to mm-hmm. it, but you would not ever not appropriate yeah not ever say that if Abs- an officer is doing that that absolutely it just wrong that. to choose to do that um matter of fact there have been a number of police officers who are now retired because i'm old um <laughs> who i who i actually some of them started out as prison guards when i knew them and uh, became police officers who i actually went and made amends with yeah for my behavior while I was in prison, but also for my behavior when I interacted with them on the street. Right. Um, and that is part of being a believer in Jesus Christ, right? Amen. It says, you know, to make amends in accordance with repentance. And so, you know, I've repented of those things. And, uh, and along with that repentance, you know, the high price that Christ paid for that, for me to be absolved of that guilt um, from a heavenly perspective, uh, requires me to, as best I can, make those amends in accordance with repentance. Right. And I've done that. And what's been your reaction? Like, when you've reached out to uh, <laughs> those officers that you know, that you've still been able to find a, re- a way to contact them, and you've apologized, what's been the reaction that you've gotten? Um, uh, it's been mixed. Okay. Uh, there have been a couple, uh, I'm not going to say names, but That's you fine. and I off air, I could tell you, uh, there some of them who were prison guards and then became officers on the beat and then became detectives. Uh, some of them just blew it off. Right. Um, there were several of them who were appreciative of that. And uh, I guess over the course of, of a number of years being removed and knowing because you guys still know guys that have been in and locked up and they're right. on the street, right. what they're doing, if they've changed, you guys know that. And yeah. they know that my life had changed. And some of them were very appreciative of it. They were, they thanked me actually, because I don't, and I'll ask you a question. Sure. How often has anybody come back to you and ever? 
Because I think it's a rarity. It's very, very rare. Right. I personally, coming to me and apologizing, um, I mean, I've gotten a couple apology letters from prisoners or from juveniles, uh, but a lot of times those are precipitated by, <laughs> hey, you need to write an apology letter Court as order. part of this program <laughs> that right. you're in, you know, that sort of thing. So I never felt like any of them were super genuine. Um, I will say that, you know, my last couple years on the department, uh, there were there were guys on my unit who had made an arrest of a of a lady. Um, she had gone to jail for for a drug offense. I can't. I believe it was for like a delivery delivery of drugs and um, and it, and other drug offenses. And uh, she got out. Um, she got clean. She got her GED, mm-hmm. and she sent those guys a letter um, and invited them to her graduation. Probably very heartfelt. Yes, it was, and and uh, that that meant a lot to those guys. Mm-hmm. It meant a lot to those guys, and they. Um, I don't know if I don't know if that graduation actually ever happened because of COVID, but they um, uh, they were they were going to go, and if it did happen, uh, they went uh, because I had I'm like, listen, regardless of what we got going on, mm-hmm. uh, you guys are going to go. Like, I think you need you need to go. They wanted to go, and 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 I wanted to give them every opportunity to go. So it's really really rare mm-hmm. um, that you you get that, um, but it does it does happen. Well, I mean, I'll just say one of the individuals that I actually, when I asked you to write the letter towards me getting clemency, and uh, you had connected me with somebody that worked for the State Drug Task Force and all that, uh, who had arrested me for like the largest seizure of LSD in Lancaster County in, since the 60s, all that stuff. And uh, that individual was one of those persons that I went back. And, uh, you know, he basically was very appreciative and uh he said i he said i always knew there was something better for you you know yeah he said but to see your life today and for you to actually come to me and say hey i don't have any animus towards you uh for what you did i know you were doing your job i had made choices um but really that particular arrest it was uh, the start of a turning point in my life yeah even though and, I went to the penitentiary. Yeah. And I think what that's, you know, oh man, I could really go off the rails with this, but <laughs> here's the thing. We, we've, we've decided to separate consequences from mm. help and, and we're, like, we're so focused in this country right now that love is only diversionary programs mm. appealing to, appeasing <laughs> to, and, and, and sometimes you need that you need the mm-hmm. consequences with the help. Mm-hmm. You need to get people into prison. I, I have had people tell me going to prison helped me mm-hmm. get clean, get get my mind right, get just give me, you know, a full week or ten days to 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 work through and get my mind right and start thinking clearly. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah. I mean, going back to your other point, what what police officers usually see is people claiming mm-hmm. they've turned around right. and they've changed and they've they've turned the corner and then us to just see them reoffend. Well, if I could, I'll just speak about that a little bit. Um one of the things is is that a lot of times um people who lived the lifestyle I lived and who've been in 
prison and the penitentiary multiple times, um, you know, oftentimes we think that we, we have this expectation, right? You get out, oh, I'm doing something different, I'm different, right? And then boom, we blow our life up, right? And there we are again. Right. And then we right. go back and then we come back the next time and we talk to an officer or a counselor or, or our family member. And we're like, oh, I'm doing something different. But now that expectation has been ratcheted down a notch. Right. And after multiple times, what happens is, is people are guarding their own hearts right. from being hurt, especially those that love us, um, our families. I, I mean, I remember <laughs> my oldest brother, who's 20 years older than me, and I remember I got out of the penitentiary. And uh, I said, no, you know, I'm doing something different. He's like, yeah, right. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm serious. No, I'm... Be- because each time... But we, we, the offender, get frustrated and angry at those whose expectations have been lowered so far, but yet we're the ones who set that bar. Right. Because we repeatedly... And, and people... I don't think people understand, Anthony, that every time, and even for police officers, if you know someone that you've arrested multiple times, and you know, and then that guy says, right, whether you want to admit it or not, a PCU goes with that person, especially our families, right? Because every time it tears a piece of them off, because, and so the expectation gets lowered so far, then we get resentful when we say, we're doing something different, and they're like, "Mm mm-hmm, right. Yeah. Yeah. We should really be angry at and, ourselves. And the reason <laughs> the reason I I chuckled is because that kind of reaction is the kind of reaction way too often I had when I talked to guys like, "Oh, I'm I'm getting out. I'm turning my life around." Sure, sure you are. Sure you are. Right, because you watched multiple because, times of right. arrest and and prison and you've heard it over and over and over. Right. Yeah, and 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 um and you want to guard your own heart. I mean, not maybe not your heart, but guard yourself against having hope that this person, right? Right. And just just like being realistic, you know? Mm-hmm. I you know, and which which goes to your point, you're you're like if if every single time a prisoner or someone I had rested <laughs> that I ran back out of the street and were like, "Oh yeah, I'm I'm walking the straight and narrow. I'm doing the right thing." You know, Officer Weaver. Yep, yep, yep. And if if I if I truly believe that every single time, I mean, you'd went crazy. Yeah, I mean, it, most <laughs> of the time I'm like, I'm like, all right, you know, I'll see you I'll, on the round. I'll I'll see you around, <laughs> like you know, and and you know, even even guys, I had I had guys that would like, you know, I I remember one guy that. Um, he seemed to be on the straight and narrow. He opened a store down in the in the southeast part of the city. Um, I was in talking to him. He was claiming that you know he was a believer, um, mm. and uh, and and I was like really encouraged by this. And then you know a couple years later, he's getting arrested for diddling a little kid. You know, mm. and and you know and and I was like, so that happens all the time, mm-hmm. and you just are like, oh, well, you get okay. jaded. You get you get super jaded. Yeah, and and you know understandably so right and again it's that it's that when i go back to the north carolina thing right mm-hmm. it's it's sometimes that jadedness though can have consequences beyond just being jaded like right. that guy obviously was jaded because of how i looked and what his perception was in dealing with other members right right and so you know it's just we have to be very careful um you know and especially as believers you know we want to hope the best for everybody right and uh so yeah but i understand that 
I've had that happen to me with police officers, with lawyers, with counselors, with, you know. Right. Yeah. And family. And I will say this about, you know, outlaw motorcycle um, clubs, club members. It's a gang, but. Well, we can, we can agree <laughs> to disagree on that. Um, but I will say this. When I dealt with them, I always was on more those guys concerned me more than a lot of people I dealt with. And the reason was that they knew how to manipulate. Mm -hmm. They were excellent at manipulating just little things like trying to get closer to you, mm -hmm. trying to shake your hand. Because a lot of times you, I don't want to say a lot of times, and maybe you can speak to this. I was always concerned about who was around because usually if you had guys riding there was a support vehicle or someone they mm -hmm. knew close by and so they would try to do things like shake your hand or touch you and then get pictures taken of that interaction mm -hmm. and try to make it seem like they were friendly with the police and i remember like i i remember uh stopping two guys and the whole interaction <laughs> is them trying to get into my personal space mm -hmm. and and the whole interaction i was telling them Listen, you need to back up like three stop, feet or more. Step into me, mm -hmm. you know, and and constantly trying to keep that like barrier because these guys were were just pushing the envelope the entire time. Mm -hmm. They weren't doing anything wrong other than I stopped them for a traffic violation, um, and uh, you know, and I was I was I was absolutely pushing the envelope because I was like these guys, they know, yeah, okay, they're flying Wait. colors, and so I was pushing the envelope with them, but they were friendly. Mm -hmm. They were respectful, mm -hmm. but they tried to manipulate me the entire time on the stop. And I was so on guard. And actually, I had a friend walk past me while I was dealing with them and wanted to say hi to me. I completely ignored him. Mm -hmm. I was like, you, you have no concept of what's going on here right now. <laughs> like, I'm, well, I don't know anybody walking past me. Well, I'll just say this, Anthony. That's why you were a good cop. That's why, that's why you didn't become a statistic. Yeah. I, I mean that sincerely. I, I'm speaking that genuinely to tell you that everything you just said is very true. Um, usually, if you see one or two, there are more close by. Maybe not riding. Right. But. Yeah. And, and a lot of times that's where the ancillary things are that can hurt you. Right. Yeah. On a blind side. Yeah. I, I, w I was always super cautious uh, with them. That's why you were a good cop. Yeah. I wasn't very friendly. This harkens no, back I'm, to that. I'm not, I'm not going to co-sign that, but, you know. <laughs> uh, that harkens back to that episode, you know, you and I were talking about where I was talking about that study. And, and yeah, being, being nice and friendly was you know, is one of the top personality trait officers had that their peers and that suspects said they had uh, that that uh, were killed in the line of duty. Yeah, so. empathy. Empathy. Too much. Too empathy. much empathy. There's yeah. one thing that uh, to empathize is to understand a, a person's situation. Uh, maybe it really it means to 
in your own mind, put yourself in somebody else's shoes. But too much empathy will cause you to take shortcuts or to let your guard down. Right. Um, and that's that's not just true of police officers. That's true in a lot of different fields and trades where you're dealing with people who are coming out of the penal system or people who are coming out of psych wards or people, you know, to be empathetic is one thing, but to be overly empathetic can cause you, it can be a danger. Right. And not just for cops. Right. Because there's people out there who prey on people who, that way. Yes. Who absolutely who, who will try to pick up on those weaknesses and yep. will and use exploit them, them and exploit absolutely. them. Absolutely. Yeah. Look for for a small fisher and turn it into a crack. Yeah. Uh, I I know all about that. Right. Yeah. Um. So let's go. I want to go back. I'm looking at it. <laughs> I want to go back and and just you know find out kind of how you how you grew up like what what started you on this path to get into this lifestyle i mean there's there's so much to unpack but you know maybe the uh nodal events like do you like that word nodal i barely even know life what it means. to the nth <laughs> right exactly I but, know. but in your you know did you grow up locally did you grow up in another state like no you- i i uh I was born in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Okay. Uh, grew up here, went to school here. Um, I'm the youngest of eight. I didn't know that. Yeah. I have uh, seven siblings that are older than me. My oldest brother is 20 years older than I am. Okay. Which means he is 79 years old right now. Do you, do you have contact with all these siblings? I have zero relationship with any of my siblings. That's uh, super sad. It is very sad. Uh, not for lack of want or trying on my own part. Uh, but just to give you an idea, um, so the long and short of it is is that my mom was married twice. Uh, she had five kids to her first husband, failed. Three to my dad. Uh, my dad was a uh, workaholic, alcoholic, and womanizer, and very abusive. Uh, he worked two full-time jobs. He worked at Burnham Boiler and Penn Dairies, which is now where Costco is. Uh, it used to be Penn Dairies. Okay. Uh, he would work two full-time jobs. He'd get off his second full-time job, go to the bar, close the bar, come home, and he'd start whipping on my mom. And then we, me and my siblings would quickly try to hide. Because we knew as soon as he had had enough with my mother that he was coming upstairs and we were next. Um, my dad was terribly abusive. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, physically and emotionally. You know, and I, uh, I had some physical issues when I was a kid. And uh, had half a body cast on and cast my leg and stuff, braces. And uh, I remember one particular night he was completely ripped and came home. And uh, when he was done, pretty much smacking my mom around downstairs, he came upstairs and I tried to hide under the bed. And he reached under the bed and grabbed the brace between my two feet and snatched me out of the bed and threw me on the bed and just proceeded to beat me with his belt probably for 10 or 15 minutes. Um, and there was nothing I could do about it. I mean, 
you know, what was I going to do? I was a six, five, six year old kid. Right. Um, but I remember when I was eight years old, um, he came home and, uh, I was still awake and I went downstairs and he was trying to do whatever he was doing with my mom. And I remember thinking as a child, why can't I do something about this? You know, there is no, there's just no space in your brain to understand that right? as a kid. And uh, I remember trying to interject myself, you know, I, I remember screaming at him, you know, stop hitting my mom, stop hitting my mom. And he picked me up and he called me, he said, you little bastard. And he picked me up and threw me across the room and broke the cast off my one leg. And uh, at that point, my mom had had enough and uh, she put him out and uh, and I did not see him again. Actually, I never saw him again, but I didn't speak to him again for uh, probably 24 years. But you did speak to him again? Yeah. So uh, so that happened. Um, well, no, that's not true. When I was, I think when I was 12 or 13, I remember he pulled up in front of the house one day and said, get in the car, you're going with me. And I was like, screw you. You know what I mean? I didn't even really know who he was. And, um, so yeah, so 24 years had passed, but, um, you know, along with that came the fact that then my mother was, had to work to support kids and stuff. So I became what they affectionately call latchkey kids back then. Right. Um, you know, by the time I was 12, I was pretty much on the streets. I came and went as I went, wanted to, um, you know, and that's really probably some of the more formative years for me. Um. But alongside of that, uh, you know, there was sexual abuse. Um, You know, praise be to God that I was able to reconcile with my mother and my sister uh, for that. But yeah, my my mom had sexually abused me, my sister, my next oldest sister, and a lady who lived next door. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, again, as a kid... You just don't have a place in your brain to put that. Right. Um, you know, and so for years, I mean, that really formulated my relationship with women. Uh, I never had a healthy relationship with a woman, ever. Uh, you know, they were they were objects. They were, you know, when I was done sucking them dry emotionally, physically, whatever, just kick them to the curb, move on to the next one. Um, uh, but by the grace of God... Uh, when my mother was 65 years old. Uh, so we're going to fast forward now through right. my life. Right. So I ended up on the streets, 12, 13, hanging out, stealing, smoking pot, you know, getting high. And uh, really, uh, I had a strong pension uh, to not let men get close to me. Um, and I think that's where the violence part really started coming into play. Uh, I was not going to let a man get close enough to me to hurt me again, uh, the way that my father hurt me. Um, and so, you know, if there was any even inkling or idea that you were going to violate me or you were going to invade my space or you were going to hurt me, that was cause for a beatdown. Now, you have to understand, I, I, was, I was a chubby kid. I used to wear husky clothes. 
<laughs> used to get those at Sears, man. Do Huskies. they even make Husky clothes? I don't anymore? know if they do or not, but pro- I hated pro- that. Probably not. Because, no, it's probably you know, not PC. It's not PC. But, it's um, not nice. I, you know, so I was a chubby kid, but there was, you know, the kids I was running with, man, you know, a lot of Hispanic. I grew up in the ward, a lot of black and Hispanic uh, friends, not too many white friends. And, uh, you know, there was nothing they were going to do that I couldn't do, right? Regardless. And I think that was really a part of my, the all in mentality and like, you know what? Uh, overachiever. Mm-hmm. You climb up on the roof, I'm climbing up the roof. I don't care if it takes me four or five tries, I'm getting on the roof with you. You know, that's how it was. If you're going to throw knuckles, we're going to throw knuckles, right? That's just how it was. And then I played sports and. Uh, I had a number of coaches who tried to get me to leave it on the field or on the mat. They knew I was troubled. I had an art teacher that really poured into my life, tried to, um, knew I was troubled, knew I needed help. And I, you know, I never forget my football coach saying, just, I don't care what you do. I want you to be at the ball, wherever the ball, leave it on the field, Right. just leave it on the field, all the aggression. Well, that only works for so long. And so, you know, again, I'm on the streets, I'm getting high, I'm ripping and robbing. And, you know, I had such a strong need in my life. I call it the three big A's, affirmation, acceptance, and approval, because I didn't get those from my father. I didn't get those from anybody. I got those on the street. That's where I learned that, you know, I could affiliate and I would be accepted and and approved, even though the behavior was criminal or aberrant, it was approved of right? And affirmation. Yeah, you did a good job. I mean, strong arm robbery, man. You got a nice take. That I mean, that stuff would charge me up, man, because like I didn't have that. So, uh, you know, that all happened, you know, and I ended up not finishing high school because I got high and drunk and did some stupid stuff and got kicked out. And then I was given a choice to either go to jail or go to the Marine Corps at 17 years old. Who, who gave you that choice? Like where Buck that- Walter. Judge Buck Walter. Okay. With his big black room glasses. And he looked down at me and my friend who had done what we did. And he said. Which was what? Uh, we terrorized the high school. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but. <laughs> yeah, it was not good. Uh, there, were, there were probably a hundred counts of, uh, uh, of uh, endangerment. And what did you do? Uh, we rode our motorcycles through the school. Okay. Right between homeroom and first period. Okay. Books flying, people screaming. Okay. We were lit. We drank a half gallon of Nikolai vodka and smoked a lid of weed. You don't even know what a lid is. You're too young. Um, <laughs> but anyway, you know, and so me and my friend, uh, we stood before him and he said, Mr. I'm going to give you an option. You have uh, almost 100 counts of endangerment, whatever, going to be charged as an adult. And this back then, they used to do this, give you this option. Or you can enlist in the United States Marine Corps. So that was an actual option they could give you. Like the they judge could do that, yes. And the judge, that could be like your sentence to go yeah. into the Marines? No. Your option was either you enlist in the Marine Corps or you're getting charged as an adult with all of these counts of. Whatever. And the Marines would take. Do the Marines still take kids I don't, like that? They don't, I, they don't do that anymore. The courts okay. do not do that anymore. But I mean, well, I'm just well, I'm, I'm showing my age here, man. <laughs> but I guess my question is, like, will the Marines take someone who's had who's well that because trouble? yeah. Well, here's the thing: the charges would be dropped 
Okay. So by that time, you didn't have a lot of charges. No. I mean, I had some, you know, some thefts and, you know. Nothing nothing major. major. Okay. And so I was like, sign me up. (laughs) Yeah. Little did I know that that would end up leading me to a federal penitentiary. Um, But anyway, so, yeah, so that all happened. You know, I just, that's really where I learned, man, it was on the streets, you know. Uh, so yeah, so, you know, uh, glory to God and grace be to God that, you know, when my mother, 24 years later, I was, uh, Penn State University, I was driving by, uh, going to the campus and didn't know I was driving by my father's house, uh, his apartment like every day. No kidding. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, and for years, my mother told us that, you know, you're SOB old man. He never paid support and he didn't want to see you kids and blah, blah, blah. Well, so one day some guy says to me, my last name, he's like, is your dad's name? I'm like, mm, no. And he's like, is your dad's name? Do they call him that? And I was like, yes. And he said, uh, I think he lives right over here. I was at campus. I was like, no, can't be. So anyway, I did a little research and come to find out. Now, you have to understand, when I was a kid, even though my old man was violent and all that, you know, he worked at Pendary's. He used to bring home the sandwich cookie wafers and ice cream from Pendary's and the whole block. And we used to go boating when I was a kid in uh, Bush River, Maryland. I have pictures of me with cast on my legs fishing off the boat, you know, so that's why I still have a love for fishing and boating. Right. And uh, so, yeah, so did a little investigation and found the address. It was actually him. And uh, I remember the fear and trepidation that I had the day I pulled into the parking lot on the way to school. I knocked on the door and uh, there was no answer. And so, but I saw there was a boat in the parking lot. My dad was an avid boater all his life. And I'm like, okay. So I left my phone number. And my phone rang. And I said, hello. And he said, he called me by a name that he had called me when I was young. And I was like, who is this? Because only my sister ever called me that name. He and my sister, mm-hmm. my one sister. And he said, it's your dad. And I like had a paranoid, like a, a panic attack in my chest. Like my heart got tight. Right. I couldn't breathe almost. And I was like, okay. And so then we talked a little bit. And then over the course of... I don't know, probably a month and a half, had repeated phone calls with him. And, um, you know, I basically challenged him. I had a real burden for his soul uh, because I was a believer in Jesus Christ at this point in my life. And uh, I remember saying to him, I said, you know, uh, mother told me that, like, you didn't pay support, you didn't this, you didn't that. And uh, he said... I'm going to tell you, I tried to pay support and your mother wouldn't take it. I tried to get visitation and uh, your mother wouldn't let me. He said, and 
probably rightly so, because at that point, you know, my life was in the bottom of a bottle. He said, but I've been dry. I've been not drinking in over 14 years now. And then he proceeded. Um, and then he proceeded to tell me everything about my life. He knew that I was a three-letter varsity sports player. He knew I had gotten in trouble. He knew I had gone in the Marine Corps. He knew all this stuff about my life, which to me did not line up with the fact that he didn't want anything to do with his kids. Right. And they proceeded to tell me stuff about my sisters. Um, it was a pretty gut-wrenching thing. And so then the, you know, the Holy Spirit, the Lord just really pressed on my heart. You know, I had a burden for his soul. Like, I didn't know where he was. I know he had been in AA for 14 years or whatever. And, and, uh, <laughs> I was just due to graduate from Smeal College of Business and, uh, at Penn State. And, uh, we were going to get together. We were going to go fishing. And uh, I graduated, and right out of college, I had gotten a job as an HR, doing HR work. And one of my duties as an HR analyst was for this certain company was to look at the obituaries every day to see if they had retirees who had passed away because we had their pensions and whatever. Right. Second day on the job, it was a Tuesday morning. I will never forget it, Anthony. Is if it was yesterday. The following Saturday, I was supposed to get together with him to go fishing. That Tuesday, second day on the job, I opened the newspaper up, and there was this picture. He had died. And uh, I remember just literally, I fell on my knees in my office, like literally just started weeping. I mean, just weeping. I mean, my boss came in. He's like, what is going on? I couldn't even talk, dude. I was just right. like pointing at the picture and he's like, oh my. And uh, so that really prompted me then to have a conversation with my mother about the lies. from And, and I understand, listen, the sexual abuse and the lies and the denial were all defense mechanisms for her. Two failed marriages, abuse, both marriages. I, I, I get it. I was a counselor for almost 20 years, so I understand. I didn't then, but I, I challenged her. Uh, after his funeral, I talked to her, and I said, hey, this is what I know. Why'd you lie to us for all these years? And I confronted her. I mean, I just flat out, you know me well enough. Right. I get, I get like, a, like a dog on a bone, man. Like, I'm a, okay, I need to understand the truth here. Right. And, uh, and I remember the day sitting in my mother's bedroom on East Orange Street, and uh, and she just wept, you know, and I just presented the gospel to her. You know, I, I thought in my heart, I said, if I couldn't present the gospel to my father, which I think I think that was a nodal, you know, use your word, event yeah. in my life that really solidified me on the gospel. I don't miss too many opportunities. If I go to a restaurant, someone's wearing a cross necklace, earrings, I ask, and I always tell them, we're going to pray, you know, what's that mean to you? But I presented the gospel, and my, my, my mother gave her life to Jesus Christ that day. Um, wow. 
And the day that she died at Conestoga View, I remember she had been, uh, I was on a missions trip. And they flew me home because they said that she was unresponsive. And I was power of attorney. That's a whole other story. But uh, I remember when I came into her room, and I used to call her buckwheat because of her hair. And uh, I remember leaning over her bed, and she was not responsive. And I remember saying, hey, buckwheat, hey. And uh, and she opened her eyes. And I said, so you ready to go see Jesus? And she just kind of nodded her head and went to sleep, man. It's a pretty incredible story that you actually got back in time to see well, her was, and talk to her. That was the second time. The first time I was on a missions trip and they thought she was going to die. And I came home and then like I was power of attorney and she had a living will, advanced directive, take her off all the drugs. And she ended up getting better and living <laughs> for another, you know, almost two years. Oh, really? Yeah. I got to take her on her final Harley ride. My wow. mother used to ride motorcycle, man. So. Okay. But anyway, so I'm sorry. I digress, man. No. But anyway, so yeah, that was, uh, you know, I don't know if I'll, I don't know if my father found Jesus Christ in the rooms of AA or not, because if you work those steps the way they're meant to be, they will lead you to the 66 books of the Bible. They right. will. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I'll see my father in heaven or not. Um, right. But that really solidified me, you know, when I take my spiritual gifted test, uh, you know, evangelism, exhortation, and prophecy. Evangelism at the top. I, I think that that was a notable event that just, like, today is the day of salvation. Yeah. There are things that, you know, some things that you cannot repent of. Opportunities missed are one of those. When you miss an opportunity, you can't repent of that. That opportunity may never come again. Right. And so, uh, yeah. So that's kind of the story of my life. Uh, you know, I made amends with my sister who ended up becoming a believer and she repented of the, the abuse. Um, and so, yeah, I ended up having four kids to four different women uh, because, you know, I didn't understand how to have a healthy relationship with a woman. And uh, by the grace of God, I've been with my wife now for almost 30 years. Right. Um, She's yeah. definitely your better half. I don't mean that in a disrespectful way. God but... knew what I needed. <laughs> he knew yeah. what I needed. So, yeah, so that's kind of where it all started, man. Right. Um, I think that... Um not to cut you off. I just, I love the evangelistic part of that, of what you said. Um, because in many ways, I just, I, I think about guys I was on the job with, um, primarily guys I was on the job with, because I think that's the closest interaction I had with people who were unbelievers. And I was just always struck by the fact that if I, if I say that I if I say that I love these guys, if I say that I care about these guys, and yet I don't share the hope that I have in Christ, <laughs> is that really love? I I don't think it is, personally. I I know like there's people out there who say, well, you can, you know, you can love people. Um I I, I actually I have a problem with believers who say that they love people, um, but they will not open their mouth and share the gospel. I have a huge problem with it. Shame on them. 
Shame on them. I, 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 and I was like that. I used to be like that. Shame on you. Yeah. I've been a believer, you know, since I was a kid. And, and I remember distinctly the things leading, the things in my life that led me to a point where I literally could no longer be silent on that. Um, and, and where God just really showed me that it's not, it's not just how you live your life. It's a commandment. It's a commandment mm-hmm. for us to go and, and share the gospel. Um, go. You, you, you may change that person's eternity. Yes. And, and that... Which is a long a, time. Right. <laughs> and that in and of itself is the greatest act of love I can give mm. people. And it, it's... I, this is going off the rails again here, but it, it's, it's exactly why I can't stand the social justice movement, because I'm like, what is the point? You are literally loving people to hell. That's what you're doing. You're being kind. You're doing this. You're doing well, that. You're enabling them to live an aberrant lifestyle. You're, you're, doing, you're doing all these good, I'm not even going to say they're not good works sometimes, mm-hmm. but you are providing literally nothing that can actually save that person. Nope. And, and uh, that's why I'm, that's, you know, people are like, well, you know, that's, that's kind of strong, you know? Yeah. You know what? Yes, it is strong. But, you know, when, when it comes down to eternity and when it comes down to Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and Romans 6.23, that sin leads to death and separation from God. Well, then yes, out, it becomes very Romans, important. Romans three eleven and twelve out of there uh, either, Kari. Go ahead, go ahead. You know, hey, <laughs> what what does it say? Right, it says none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Yeah, that. I'm sorry. No one does. Not even one. And such were you and I. But here's the thing. You're right. There is a place, and the scriptures tell us to take care of widows and orphans and the indigent. It, 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 we're commanded to do that, right? But not to enable, not in lieu of the number one priority, which is their eternal salvation, right? So I, I have to push back on you a little bit, okay? And say, so you know, you said you love these guys, and whatever. So what was it that drove that? Like fear of rejection, fear of not being accepted, fear of... Because that's typically what it is. And I struggle with that, Anthony, with people even in the church today, right? Who, who they don't want people to know they're Christians or they don't want to present the gospel because they're afraid. And, and you know, I always say to them, listen, listen, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Christ, the only person who can save their, their immortal soul. Right. You know? So you're you're asking what what was the reason why I didn't early yeah. on? Um I think part of the part of the reason was that my while I was a believer in Jesus Christ, I didn't I don't think I fully understood what he had done for me. Mm. I think I I confessed I believed I was a Christian, but I had lived a certain life. I had I had grown up a certain way, I had lived Morally, in my mind, I lived morally. I was a mm. good person, and it wasn't until, um, 
and and I remember for years, and we've talked about this. I remember for years, I would I would pray, and and tell God like I, I believe everything in the Word. I like I I am a follower of Jesus Christ, but I'm missing something. Like what? Like I feel like I'm missing something in my relationship with Christ, and and what I was missing was that I thought I was a good person. I did not understand the depravity of my heart. I did not mm. understand the deceitfulness of my heart. And um, like, I'll never forget the moment where God just laid me out with that. Right and in your just heart. showed me. Amen. You are not a good person. And, and that's why like, even sometimes, you know, guys at work, you know, would come up to me and be like, oh, Weaver, you're a good person. No. I'm not. <laughs> I'm a wretched sinner. <laughs> right. There's no one good. The no, only, not one. The only good person was Jesus. Mm-hmm. Fully God, fully man. He was the only good. And and um and what once once that, once I realized that, and once I started just like you said, dealing with and and for years, for years. It it almost destroyed me. I'll be quite honest. My fear of men, and we you've had conver- you had conversations mm-hmm. with me regarding my fear of men, and it's still a struggle for me at times. Mm-hmm. But once I once I understood who I was in Christ, in Christ, Amen. What He had done for me, and um, that my identity was in Him, and not what other people thought of me, not the accolades I got. And I still struggled with it for years. Mm-hmm. Sorry, you're supposed to be interviewing me. No, man, it almost <laughs> it, it almost destroyed me. I'll be honest, and and maybe we'll get more into that story. You yeah. know, I think at some point Lauren Lauren wants to kind of interview me and and tell a little more of my story. But you know that you know I I just I I I felt like I could not share the gospel with people. And I'm not talking like, I didn't walk around the police station with a Bible in my hand, just like constantly no, but, talking but about the Lord. opportunities presented themselves. like, yeah, exactly. If guys were struggling, their marriage or yes. something on the job, there like were, those opportunities missed. Yes. Right? And there were, there were opportunities to talk about my faith. And some of the best opportunities when guys were trapped in a car with me for, you know, however many hours. <laughs> you know, we'd be on surveillance for seven hours and I'd talk about... You know, we'd have these big theological discussions, um, you know, with, with friends of mine that, um, you know, hopefully one day we'll, we'll bend their knee, you know, but uh, just, just trying to be faithful in, in planting those seeds. So anyways. So yeah, so that's kind of the story of how I ended up uh, really getting into aberrant behavior. Okay. So, so, okay. So you make the decision. I'm going into the Marines. Yep. You go, you sign up, obviously. Yeah. They take you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then life and then got what, interesting. Yeah. What, because, what happened? Uh, well, you know, you know me, Anthony. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm an adrenaline junkie, just like you. Um, you know. I'm not an adrenaline junkie anymore. You are so full of crap. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we've had multiple conversations about that, too. But anyway, you know, I'm an all-or-nothing guy, man. I mean, it's like, okay, if this is what I'm going to do, I'm going to do it. And I took very seriously what I did in the Marine Corps. You know, I applied myself. I was, you know, expert pistol, expert marksman, you know, everything. I just did it. And, and uh, 
Yeah. So ended up there. Did okay. what I did. Went to Japan. Went to you know Camp Schwab, Camp Hansen. Was on a NATO float. Did a bunch of stuff, and then uh, the Iranian hostage crisis happened, and um, man, dude, this is fresh. I was just talking to somebody where I live recently. To Iraq, uh, did several tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, up where I live, and. Uh, mm-hmm. We just got to talking about stuff, you know, and, and like I, you know, I wear these all the time. Dog and the, tags. And the black tape around them is a constant reminder to me, even though it's more than 30 years afterwards, of the friends that I lost um, uh, during that whole debacle. Uh, it was Operation Desert Claw. Lost some friends from Cherry Point. Uh, from the Air Wing in Cherry Point, North Carolina. Uh, and I'll I'll be honest with you, I don't know a lot about that situation because when did when did that happen? It was in eighty uh, two. Okay, so I would have been like four. Yeah. So can you just talk a little bit about? Well, what, you know, what that... the Iranian hostage thing was they they took a bunch of Americans hostage. Uh, Jimmy Carter was president. Uh, we don't need to go down that road, but um, anyway, uh, actually, what most people don't understand is that you know there was a movie out uh, called um, Argo, mm-hmm. and it was about how they got the hostages out. Yes, and I it was it. this big. It was it was all right. It's garbage. I'm, I'm I, yeah. I have to refrain my tongue right now uh, because <laughs> my emotions are probably at about 150 percent at the right. moment, uh, and I'm trying not to cry. Um, that was so much BS, man. The art government is so full of crap. Uh, that's not at all how it went down. I was floating on a ship outside there. And, uh, so if you don't understand about how it is over there, uh, in the deserts, so the operation was for them to go in at night. They were going to fly low, no marker lights, no anything going in. Well, they have things called ghost columns over there. And what they are is these columns of sand that go up. They almost, they're like a tornado, but they're very funneled and small, but you cannot see them. I mean, you can't hardly see them in the daylight, let alone at night flying with no lights, no markers, low to the ground. Um... So we got over there, all that's going on, get in, had a meeting place in the desert, refueling, uh, had a plane go down, had people died. Right. You have never ever read, nor will you ever read, nor will you ever hear anything about those, those Marines that died. Why? Because our government's full of crap. Because it was a whole cover-up. It was this clandestine operation that wasn't supposed to, no one was supposed to know about. So just like a plausible deniability type thing. Exactly. Okay. And then they come up with this BS thing about how they did a production and a movie and got them out, you know. And that's why I wear the black tape on my dog tags. Mm. I don't ever want to forget my friends who I spent time with, right, who died and the government won't even recognize them, officially recognize them. That is just wrong, man. That, that is just immoral. 
Right. And, uh, you know, most people don't understand that out of that whole debacle is when the whole Delta Force and all of those other special forces came out of that mm-hmm. because they screwed up. And so, uh, so that happened and I came back and, uh, can I just ask yeah, some questions? What, so what were your duties during that? You said you were, you were on the ship. Yes. And, and actually, what, what actually, was your duty? Actually, um, at that point I was with second FSSG out of Onslow beach, North Carolina. It's a second field support services group. And that's actually where later, later, um, some of the special forces people came out of that after this whole thing. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, I had been a forward observer for an artillery unit. I had been, you know, a ground pounder for a while. Um, I did some cert things where, you know, going in, trying to find people, get them out. Had some specialized training. Uh, actually had made it to the rank of corporal. Earned my blood stripes, uh, which was always an interesting thing in the Marine Corps. Uh, I had a squad under me, and uh, you know, failure wasn't an option. Do so, you do you feel because because I'm I'm guessing you were kind of in that inc- incident. You were like in a support role on the ship, mm-hmm. waiting a- waiting to go in if needed. Okay. So you, they flew in, they flew in, they were to establish a base uh, in the desert, and then if needed, the support group was coming in behind them, which would have been our group, right? Um, which would have been an artillery unit, an infantry unit, and some other people. But I actually, because of those guys that I, at Cherry Point, North Carolina, the Marines that I had done operations with, I mean, jumped out of helicopters, some of these guys were pilots that I knew. You were you close know. with them. Yes. Yeah, you know, I'd go out and do forward observer work for an artillery unit. Life expectancy about three minutes, right? Because <laughs> back then they had PR seventy seven antennas and all that. But anyway, right. uh, so yeah, I, I did a lot of maneuvers with these guys. You know, jumped out of helicopters. You know, all that, and and um, it still just it just still rips me up, man. Right. I watched that movie Argo, Anthony. And you could call my wife right now, and she would tell you for like two or three weeks, man, I was just twisted, man. I mean, twisted up inside in my gut. Um, you know, it's just yeah. wrong, man. Yeah. Do you do you think? Um, do you have any, or did you have any guilt over? Like, I'm just listening to you tell the story. And I feel like for me, I would have felt like somehow... Yeah, I should have been there. Yeah. Yeah. Because the accident that happened was... Well, the accident that happened was completely um, avoidable. Let's just put it that way. If the support services group had been in there, what happened would probably not have happened. Okay. Um. And that was a decision that was made by a commanding officer, which ultimately I ended up in Leavenworth because of. He he ended up causing you to get uh, yeah, in a little bit of did. trouble. Yeah. So 
I earned my blood stripes as a corporal E4. What's blood stripes? If you don't know what blood stripes are, well, first of all, let me just say, the United States Marine Corps has the best dress uniforms of any service, any military. They're sharp and together. Yeah, don't just throw your hands up at me like that. No, what, I, would, what I was going to uh, say is I don't, I'm not going to disagree with you. But anyway, so if you've ever seen the Marine Corps dress blues. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Their pants have a red stripe down the sides of the legs. Those are called the blood stripes. You do not earn those on your dress blues until you reach the rank of corporal. Okay. Once you become a corporal, well, then it's like a hazing. <laughs> okay. You go through your whole platoon. You go down, and they call them blood stripes because until they're done hitting you and your legs, you have blood welts and everything, man. I'm guessing that in our day and age now, they... Do you they, think they still do that? Uh, not publicly. <laughs> <laughs> they probably do it behind the barracks. Do you think so? Oh, I, yeah. It's a tradition. I, it is a long-established tradition that will not go away. I'm guessing there's some sort of snowflake that uh, will report it anyway. at some point. So, yeah, so I've okay. got my blood stripe. Uh, yeah, we had come back and earned, had a meter- meritorious promotion, field service promotion, Again, all in, you know, I do, I, I said earlier in, in the the broadcast here, the podcast that, you know, I had a squad under me and failure was not an option. I said, I, it didn't matter what we were asked to do. We will not fail. They want us to dig a hole to China. We're going to dig a freaking hole to China. We will not fail. And I held that standard. I held that. I mean, you know me enough, right. Anthony, to know. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, so there was this certain commanding officer who uh, had Napoleon syndrome. Okay. Um, he, he had a problem. And uh, he tried multiple times to break my squad. I mean, he had us doing some just crazy stuff. And, uh, and like, we just rose to the occasion. What going to happen? Dude, I don't care. I'll be out there all 24, 48, 72 hours. Doesn't matter. We will not fail. And my, my squad knew that. And they respected that. They were a bunch of hardcore ooh, Marines, man. Like, they were like, we're going to get it done. And uh, we were preparing for a CG inspection, which is a commanding general's inspection. Now, I just earned, just earned my E4. And this guy, we had been preparing for... I don't know, probably three, four weeks, about a month for this siege. Because it's a big, it's, a, it's at Camp Lejeune. Like, it's the entire Camp Lejeune, commanding general inspection area, spit and polish, right? Preparing for this thing. I'm standing out there, and this particular individual calls me out of rank and calls me around the side of the barracks. I don't know if I'm allowed to say this on here or not, but I'm going to say it. Lord, forgive me. Um, calls me out because in the Marine Corps, they have this thing, uh, called a, you're called an SB and it's not that, it, it means crap bird, right? <laughs> gotcha. All right. You, and, uh, you can say whatever you want on here. Okay. Well, you know, he calls me outside of the barracks and, you know, he's like, you know, so, and he said, you're, you're nothing but a shit bird. And, uh, and he spit on my dress blues. That is paramount to a death warrant for a Marine. That is the ultimate disrespect. Did he spit on him 
on purpose? Oh yeah. Okay. So it wasn't like he was. No, just he like at looked you. at me and said, "You're you're a crap bird," and, and spit on my dress blues right before this inspection. Yes, we were we were in formation, Anthony, waiting for the CG to come around to the different divisions. And he just did this because he was threatened by you. Because he because he could not break our well not only our squad but our whole platoon in, in our division. I mean, we were we were getting after it, man. Right. We were good at what we did. And he spit on my dress blues, and it was not even. It was just a a reaction. And it broke his jaw and his arm. He broke his jaw and his arm. Yes. Okay. Because when I broke his jaw, he went to hit me, and so then I just broke his arm. Had you been in any trouble at all up until that point in the Marines? Really? No. Okay. Not, Not. Well, I mean, I had been right. I had been called on quarter deck a few times for being a little harsh, a little demanding. I had. One guy that went away after about six months because he was a snowflake. And, like, you know, we'd go out, do maneuvers. We'd go down to Fort Bragg on maneuvers. And he'd, oh, oh, you know, I'm sorry. <laughs> that just wasn't cutting it. And so, um, anyway, so needless to say, I didn't make that commanding general's inspection. Okay. Uh, because they <laughs> called the MPs who came and immediately arrested me. And took me to the brig. Okay. Then what happened? So, you know, I don't know the Lord at this point in my life, but I see how God had his hand on my life. Um, right. So I'm in there and I get a JAG, uh, a JAG from the Navy, which is a judge advocate general. They're basically equivalent of an attorney. Defense attorney. Yeah. Yep. And a really good one. But before that all happened, I had really befriended a grizzly old master gunnery sergeant, all right? Like, this is he's like an E-8, right? This guy had been in Nam. He'd been, you know, all over the place. And he really, really liked me. And uh, so he actually came to see me in the brig. Really? That's yeah. awesome. Awesome. He's, he's like, oh, this guy had a coffee mug? I'm sorry, this is a little side thing. My, my wife goes crazy. Like, I, like, my travel mug, like, it probably hasn't been cleaned in two years. <laughs> Right, I'm like, don't clean my mug, man. Like that, that crust in there is like, I like that. That's from the Marine Corps. So he, anyway, he really liked me. Came saw me. He said, I'm gonna get you a jag. Got this guy. He worked out a deal that uh, they were gonna give me a bad conduct discharge. You know, dishonorable. Yeah. And um, he worked it out with this jag and said, Look, man, I don't care what you got to do. He'll go do his time. But when he's come, I, you need this sentence to say, when he finishes his time in Leavenworth, he can come back to headquarters battalion under my command and make up the bad time. That's like unheard of. Yeah. Usually you go do your time in Leavenworth, bro. You're done. And you're out. And, uh, and, and I just have to tell you, listen, I've been in county prisons, podunk hold prisons, state prisons. That was a rough stop. Leavenworth is no joke, man. It is no, I mean, it is no joke. And, why? Uh, why is it? Well, they, they, har- they house some of the most violent and mentally ill 
military and federal prisoners in the country. Is it all military in there? Or no? Okay, there all are right. different wings. I didn't realize that. No, it's not all. Just there, there are wings that have non-military. Okay. Anyway, uh, yeah, I saw some stuff in there, man. That look, I, I consider myself a badass sometimes. <laughs> all right, you are a badass, Al. But I saw some things in there, man, that really caused me to take pause. Like, not fear and trepidation, but like, cells crack. You're looking out both ways, left and right, before you step out. All right? I, I, it's just that kind of thing. And uh, so I did that. Go back to Lejeune. Um, went under this guy's watch. Made up the 18 months. And they gave me a general other than honorable discharge. Basically, it's a good of the service discharge. How freaking bad do you have to be that the Marine Corps kicks you out because it's for the good of the service to get rid of you? That is just nuts, man. So <laughs> anyway, so you know, then I get out, and I know you want to get into how I got introduced to the MC world. Um, so I get out, go to Brooklyn, New York, uh, with a good friend of mine who to this day is one of my best friends. He goes on that hand of five. The guy who I know would have taken a bullet for me, and I would have certainly taken a bullet for him. And during our time together in that world, uh, outside of the Marine Corps, um, there were multiple times when that scenario almost played out. Did you know this guy from the Marines? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, we were in the Corps together. Okay. Uh we were in the Corps together, uh, let's see, after I went boot camp, went there, went to Bragg, or uh, went to Fort Sill, came back. Yeah, it was right after I did uh, my uh, forward observer and fire direction control training in Fort Sill, Oklahoma. We hooked up at Lejeune, and then we were together the entire time. We studied the martial arts together. We did, you know, we did everything together. Um, now, he got out before I did because I had to make up the bad time. Right. Uh, Got out, didn't even come back to Pennsylvania. Okay. And there was nothing here for me, man. Right. And uh, went to Brooklyn, New York, East 37th Street and Avenue U, right near King's Plaza. That's where we lived, Italian neighborhood, and uh, CC. And so uh, we get up there, and we decided we were going to start a start an outlaw club. And so we did. Rogue animals. What, what caused you... Like, how did you even arrive at that decision? Well, when I got to New York, man, I mean, I've always, I've been riding motorcycles since I was young. Okay. You know, dirt bikes, you know, all that. I started riding Harleys, actually, when I was probably 15 or 16 years old. I knew people that had them and whatever. Okay. And um, so, yeah, he opened up a motorcycle shop in Brooklyn. And uh, so got up there and then started hanging out. I, I could show you pictures, man. This is back when we had the Baker long front ends, the big long front ends. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, choppers, you know, I'm old, dude. But anyway, uh, so he opened a shop. I go up. I'm like, hey, you know, CC, look, man, I'm here. There's nothing in PA for me. And, you know, I'm just going to come here. Come on, man. We can just live at mom's house with me. That's what I did. And uh, we decided that. We were going to start a club. And so we did. Called the Rogue Animals. I hope you enjoyed the first part of my interview with Al. 
make sure to check out next week's episode for part two. Uh, Last week, I mentioned that I would have some cool new information about the podcast. Well, life happens and the week just didn't go quite as planned. And so it's not quite yet set up. But I am very excited to announce that very soon you will have the opportunity to be a Diakonos, a Cops Calling patron, which not only helps me to kick up dust after the mission of the podcast, but also gives you the opportunity to win exclusive gifts and be a more integral part of the Diakonos podcast community. Uh, More details are going to come about that and and what it's all about and how you can be a part of it. And hopefully uh, I'll be getting that information out to you in the next couple of weeks here. Uh, Finally, thanks for giving me your time every week and seeking to better understand the calling of police officers. If you are listening and you are a police officer, part of kicking up the dust is doing what needs to be done regardless of people understanding it. Here's the thing. People may not like you and they may think they don't need you, but they do need you. They may never know they need you. They may live in a carefree life and not understand that the freedom they have comes from officers who are doing things they'd rather not consider or be concerned about. Or they may one day need an officer, one that's willing to kick up the dust in pursuit of a lawbreaker, and then they will hope for one who can do what they've decried and demonized. So kick up the dust in pursuit of the lawbreaker. Kick it up for those that appreciate you and those that don't, just like you've always done.